More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Through research, capacity building, and education, Felicia Han, Executive Director of FBN Asia, fosters a conducive environment for family relationship health and communal well-being. We had the opportunity to sit down with Felicia Han to discuss this balance and the future of Asian family businesses. Enjoy this episode. So, we always start with the icebreaker question. Now, I have the privilege of already knowing a little bit about your professional background, but I think to give yep. some context, yep. how come an organizational psychologist lands as becoming the head of the Family Business Network in Asia? What was your journey towards FBN Asia and how did you end up where you are today and so passionate about family businesses? Well, I started as an organizational psychologist, as you know, uh, and I was practicing in the military, believe it or not, doing psychometric testing, leadership development, organization development, and so on, and uh, gradually moved into the private sector doing uh, OD work, succession work, executive coaching work. And then I landed in banking, which was a very uh, fortunate sort of move and had the opportunity to go into wealth management and work with people in the affluent sector. And so that became a very interesting field because I saw how my skill set could be combined coming from psychology and family dynamics and the human dynamics uh, alongside with some of the complexities and dilemmas that wealth can bring sometimes. And so I met a couple of people who also were doing a couple of uh, interesting things. And one of them was the founder of the Family Business Network, who founded the Asia chapter And uh, we had a couple of very long and serious conversations about everything from family to business to evolution. And uh, what, what I found for myself was that I was landing at the perfect intersection between human dynamics and wealth management. And it was a space where I felt that I could really contribute. And I was very, very passionate. And the more I got to know the people in that space, I felt that this was a place that I really wanted to be in because the people really cared about others, cared about the community, cared about using profit for purpose and leveraging the resources that they had to do to do good. So that was a very inspiring start that got me more and more interested. And so four or five years later, this is where I am and haven't looked back since. Feel fantastic. You're very passionate and you joined the network um, halfway through its existence as well. We'll talk a little bit more about the 10th anniversary of FBN Asia. But first of all, like, you know, I think that we need to clarify a little bit more clearly because saying Asia, that's a big term that encompasses a large part of the world. So tell us a little bit more about the countries that you currently cover with the association and, and how you guys managed to span such a large geographical consideration. 
Yeah, well, we cover most of Asia because we call family business Asia, but we have separated out India and Japan simply because uh, we don't have the language capacity to be able to support those countries. And also because the methods associated with family businesses in Japan and in, uh, are quite unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Japan has very interesting and quite set succession structures where the lineage is uh, sort of passed on very, very clearly. If you don't have a son, uh, you'd adopt a son at the point at which uh, uh, your daughter kind of marries and uh, uh, your son marries into the family. And so they've got like the longest lineage for over 150 years, family businesses, right? Um, so we cover Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, China. Those, those are our most uh, active markets, so to speak. And uh, we manage them really with a very, very strong grassroots movement if you will, uh, with strong engagement from family businesses in in each of these different places. I mean, and it's such, a, and again, right, like such diversity that encompasses in those different places, very different uh, economic considerations, very different challenges. Hong Kong, you know, right now is going through a very interesting uh, period as well in its history. And, and so the family businesses are all affected by different kind of dynamics. Like, can you tell us a little bit more about the the common challenges that you see between all of the family businesses within your your sort of like your geographic reach and also a little bit maybe tell us a little bit also about like the ones that stand out per country that you're sort of very focused on. Well, I think that the considerations are quite varied and diverse because no family business is alike, but there are also some trends that kind of run across. And what's interesting for us is that we're seeing generational shifts because uh, FBN started in 2008, and that was just really right at the heart of the financial crisis, if you recall. And so the network became a very safe space for families to come together, not so much to talk about the impact of the economic crisis per se, because um, we we represent multi-generational family businesses who've been through boom and bust and had crisis and comebacks. And so it's, it's not new to them that business goes to cycle. But what was interesting was the impact of all of these things on family and family dynamics and relationships and how families that were stronger with their communication, with their values, with their thinking around what the family identity was, uh, stood a better chance um, at uh, not just surviving, but really thriving through the whole period. So those were very big, important things that really came to the fore. And uh, if you read our 10th anniversary publication, you'll see a lot of threads there around the importance of identity on stewardship, which is, you know, in essence, really taking care of what you've inherited for future generations, rather than seeing things as your own and and things as as me and mine. Mm -hmm. And this whole concept of we being stronger than than individual I these themes came forth very, very strongly and, and saw a lot of our families through. Um, the next generation at that time, uh, post 10 years, uh, have a new name, and we call them our now generation segment. So it's called now gen. And they're a bit different because they're now in, in seats of authority and accountability. And they are just right at the cusp where a lot of traditional business models are getting increasingly disrupted, business cycles getting uh, shorter. And they are right smack in between where they have to manage their predecessors' views around being cautious and prudent, alongside with what they can see that's really coming as a very strong disruptive wave, technology and fintech, um, and the way we think about business and the way our social media is working out. Mm-hmm. And that's impacting business on, on every front. More importantly, we see a very significant shift as well in terms of how 
there is a call for businesses definitely to serve more than just a profit-making purpose. This whole notion around serving a larger social purpose, uh, doing good, doing right, doing well, is something very, very close to the hearts of our now gens, of our next gen. That's not to say that they, they weren't close to, to the hearts of uh, the previous gen, but it's just playing out in a, in a slightly different way because everything is getting much more transparent. Mm-hmm. Like all trends, it's very interesting to see these trends like across the, these trends we recognize as well, of course, in other parts of the world, uh, as you very well know, being associated with an international network. I was just wondering when you were explaining this as well about, especially the part about identity, and I think this is where also this conversation is so interesting for us to learn from you to understand a little bit more how Asian societies and the structure of Asian societies obviously also impact the chances for a family business to survive. So while you were speaking as well, I was thinking that it is, of course, very interesting to look at family businesses within the context of Asian societies that are more still conditioned towards preserving harmony, collective thinking, and having family structures, so taking extended family into consideration with economic and non-economic goals. So I wanted to ask you, like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange question maybe, but like, I just wanted to ask you whether you think that maybe these values as well actually make it much more likely that Asian family businesses can survive as family businesses over the next few decades. Or do you think the odds are equally distributed in Asia as they are in the West, where, you know, we have admittedly much more individualistic societies? Well, hard for me to look at the crystal ball now because uh, <laughs> the world is uh, is really changing. What I do know and in my experience is very much that the family businesses in Asia absolutely have a have a resilience. Uh, and I'm sure this exists in Europe and in Latin America as well, because the history of Asia has not been linear. Mm. And as a result of all of these historical changes and, and evolution, family businesses have had to adapt a lot. Right in the way you see how democracies have uh, evolved to where they are today in China and, and Vietnam. Well, we may not call them pure democracies, but they've certainly opened the doors and, and evolved in, in, in more ways than one. This ability, I think, to regenerate, to lose everything and still come back in various forms, shapes and sizes, I think is what really defines that family business. And so as a family business network, um, our thrust is very much on the family that stays in business. Mm-hmm. And there is, of course, you know, all of that conversation is, are we a business family or a family business? Which is first, is family first or is it business first? And for us, business models can change and it should change, mm-hmm. rightfully. But it's the family that stays together in a way that is appropriate for the context of the times having the, the right processes and the structures to support all of that decision-making and that clarity and identity around who they want to be and, and, and what they want to stand for is what really gives them a really good shot at surviving across a, a crisis. Um, a family that's able to regenerate, mm-hmm. that's able to uh, reconfigure mm-hmm. and to stay innovative uh, for future generations because you, you can't stay relevant and have impact and have influence if you're not doing good. That's, a, that's of course, a wonderful trend to see that there's a great awareness with regards to purpose and, and social awareness as well. Very important, as we know, in some of the uh, some Asian, uh, Asian countries as well, very needed. But because, like, you're talking about crisis, but we also see, of course, very fast growth in some of the economies that you're covering with FBN Asia. And this can come with its own set of challenges. So, for instance, 
really interesting opportunities for the next generation outside of the family business. What do you currently see, Felicia? Is there a great motivation of most next gens or now gens, as you call them, to really stay with the family business and to join the family business? Is the next generation interested? I think, again, it varies. Some are more interested than others. But what is heartening is to see that uh, people are very open to exploring a multitude of different ways in which the next generation of Naojin can get involved in. So from family office opportunities to philanthropic endeavors to impact investing endeavors, there are so many opportunities that the Naojin or the next gen can get involved in. For as long as we keep an open mind, and increasingly we see this in Asia, mm -hmm. uh, it helps to bring the next gen back. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of challenges have to do with perhaps some of the things that have to do with education. So we have many of our next gen, now gen, sent to business schools uh, over to the West, whereas many of the current gen have a sort of slightly different slant. But having said that, many, many of them also were trained overseas. So I don't know whether you call it a generational divide or not, but we always hear our parents saying uh, quite a few of the same things that we will probably say to our own children. Mm -hmm. And that could well be some of the general generational patterns that, that we hear. And those are global, as we know. These are things we hear all over the world as well. So nobody is alone in that seat. I think that that is going to remain a challenge always. We also touched upon the fact that, you know, economies are growing fast. We know that China is moving very fast. And uh, we also know, though, that Singapore is actually very interesting. Of course, economy where you're based Uh, because Singapore is, of course, a relatively seen, has seen probably already more economic cycles maybe than the rest and has maybe a, a, a different sort of family business environment. And I wanted to ask you, do you see different levels of willingness to approach a digitalization, a digitalized world in the different countries that your region covers? Do you feel like, you know, one of them is definitely, well, you know, let's get it done, like we embrace technology fully more so yep. than the other. Yep. Do you see trends? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in some of the developing emerging markets, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, you see a little bit more of uh, more traditional type business models simply because they can continue to thrive. Mm. Whereas in city-states like Singapore and Hong Kong, where the speed of things is uh, moving at the pace of light, uh, at the speed of light, it's very difficult to continue on some of the lower-end manual-type processes, from everything from manufacturing right up to the way you do distribution, to how you think about logistics, so on. So people have changed, uh, partly driven because there's no choice. Mm -hmm. People have also embraced change in some ways because they know they have to keep thinking ahead or they've been in some ways inspired perhaps by some of the other peers within the same industry and, and they see the opportunity. But I would say, yes, there are some general differences. Yeah, but this is one way that I think nobody can escape. And so within the network, we have been discussing in depth really what the fourth industrial revolution means for us. And more than just all the opportunities that's afforded by in, in the areas of you know, artificial intelligence, healthcare, biomed, so on, is really also the whole nature of what it really means to be human. Mm -hmm. Because chatbots, robots, so many of these things are coming to the fore. So many of these things are impact around the way we think about the workforce. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to the very heart of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to have a a business, what it means to have a place in the world. And some of these things are very existential questions. 
that are important nevertheless for us to be thinking about very seriously. And how do the families react? Is this reflection very mature in them or are these discussions that are still in their infancy right now when you look at how the network interacts? I think we're fortunate to be part of a very global international fraternity. So there is a good appetite around the more mature family businesses that have been three, four, five generations to be thinking about these things. Mm -hmm. I think those who are just at the cusp of succession between first and second generation are probably not so much because there are more urgent matters at hand. Mm -hmm. The, the succession journey, I think, from founder to the next generation in terms of two generations, typically is always a, a little bit more complex and challenging mm -hmm. because the founder is still um, yeah. uh, very, rather more attached. But we see the mortality rate go down uh, in terms of longevity of family businesses. The mortality goes down once you pass three generations not just to give weight to the old adage uh, mm -hmm. that is present in every culture that wealth doesn't pass through three generations, but because by then every person that exists and continues to contribute within the family business is already someone, is an inheritor, is someone who has inherited something from the previous generation. And therefore the thinking is a little bit different from that founding generation that still has a lot of strength, but still brings a lot of attachment to, to what they founded. Of course. Yeah. And so what we talk about really is about the founder's mentality rather than the founder per se. Mm -hmm. How do we enable uh, the founder's mentality to continue to thrive? And that mentality is very powerful because it speaks of agility. It speaks of innovation. It speaks of, of perseverance, of self-sacrifice. And those are the things that we want continued mm -hmm. across generations. Absolutely. And it's, it's a, and it's a very challenging thing to instill in a culture over generations, of course, it's for sure. It's uh, not just uh, when the founder is there, but probably especially when the founder isn't anymore. So this is a very interesting debate to, I'm sure that the families enjoy. But 10 years of your network now, so 10 years, so a decade in, a very exciting you yourself, four to five years with the network. So you must have seen already a lot and you must, uh, you must have drawn certain big conclusions. What do you feel like have been the highlights for you over the last few years? And what are the things that as a network you're most looking forward to in the next decade, if you will? Like, you know, what, what do you want to achieve? Well, I think some of the biggest achievements within the network is how we've moved from a very centralized, organized sort of um, network into something decentralized where there is strong engagement by family members themselves, which for me personally is the essence of, uh, of engagement. So distributed, the, the way decision-making has been distributed really speaks of the maturity across the network, the fact that people uh, stand up for a cause uh, even though they, they are actually paying members of a network, but continue to champion so much out of their own discretion and of their own free will, uh, the cause of the network, and to put in a huge amount of effort to build the network and to engage other people in family business. I think that speaks of a very, very strong conviction in terms of how the network has played a, a huge part in transforming their own life. Mm -hmm. So in our 10th anniversary edition of uh, of the book, you hear personal testimonies around what FBN has done for them and how it has, over the years, enabled them to think through really, really important questions uh, around what it means to be a business family, a family business, uh, and so on, and how they've implemented uh, 
think like a family constitution, a family charter, not just in, in terms of the letter of the word, but really in the spirit of, of what they've wanted it to be. So that's extremely heartening. And I think going forward, we really have so much uh, more to go. Uh, with the whole landscape of family business has changed. There are also many more uh, different types of networks, uh, consulting firms coming in, all jumping onto the bandwagon of family business uh, these days, running very similar type programs. So for us, our unique value proposition continues to stay as being able to carve out really, really safe space for people to be vulnerable, to have mm-hmm. authentic conversations, and uh, to differentiate ourselves by being really inclusive and to be about the family rather than about individuals, uh, and to and embrace the full spectrum of all the issues that could be perhaps a bit taboo mm-hmm. uh, to talk outside the family but for which we create safe space. And and that includes everything from in-laws to fiscal inequality to disability and to same-sex marriage, which within the Asian and context still continues to be um, perhaps a little bit more taboo. Or even the notion of death and dying um, Mm. is is not an easy topic uh, for some of our families. No. I can imagine, but this is it's, it's so that's why it's indeed so important the work that you do in creating an environment where these things can slowly, slowly become the norm in discussion. So really wonderful work you're doing, Felicia. And and uh, is there any particular technology that uh, you believe is going to be adopted the fastest by the family businesses in the near future? Are you like I know you, the crystal ball? I know, but like still, like do you see? Uh, is it more that family businesses in Asia have embraced? Uh, social media or are they embracing automation or is there any kind of technology that you feel is a runaway trend and is going to be adopted the fastest? Well, every every trend that is available that's already taken the world by storm uh, certainly has already been embraced and families are certainly supporting all of their communication across different branches of the family with all the usual enablers, you know, your WhatsApp, your, your Facebook, your Telegram, your your apps, everything that is uh, available out there. I think the next gen, of course, is much better at it than some of the current gen, but uh, we, we see the current gen just as involved mm-hmm. because the family is important, people like to stay connected, um, but we don't see it replacing. And, and maybe this, this is a, a little bit of the difference uh, from, from some of the things we see in Europe because, because of the love of, of connection and informality and, and people wanting to be together. We don't processes and structures overtaking conversation mm-hmm. and that's why that's, that's one of the reasons also why many people within the Asian network uh, will tell us, will tell me certainly that not everything that we have that's available in the international network can be transplanted wholesale mm-hmm. uh, and on, on the Asian side it's, it's always modified, adapted uh, even the way the family office is, is being structured mm-hmm. is different yeah, so, so in the West, we know that family office uh, succession uh, works well, the good processes, structures uh, are involved in all of that. But in Asia, we still continue to have uh, families that are still very hands-on and hugely involved in the actual operation, and they continue to want to be. So the, their kind of family office is going to be quite different because of the uh, hands-on nature of uh, the way things are being structured, as opposed to, you know... Uh, the way the, the probably a seventh, eighth generation family business in Europe got a, a very well structured sort of family office. Uh, 
yeah, the way all of that operates is, is quite different. Such an interesting region. We can't wait to discover more and to talk to more families also from your network and to interview them and to tell their stories. Felicia, thank you very, very much for, for this. This was really lovely. Thank you. Oh, pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes. 